Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 73 degrees. Time now for one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you this evening? I'm doing great on a beautiful day like today. How could you be bad? Absolutely. Listen, I, I, I got to tell you, we want to get into the political stuff because it's, it's there. It's always there. It, it's certainly, uh, certainly with President Trump, more twists and turns than you could ever even begin to imagine. But um, I want to go back to what we, you visited with me yesterday when I was filling in for John Hines, and I had to cut you off on your ostrich egg story. Yes. Folks, if you didn't hear last week, um, Professor Schultz was out and about and uh, decided to purchase an ostrich egg. This is sort of how it all started. And what was it? Was it in Wilmer? It was in Wilmer. I was out in Wilmer um, for a project I'm working on. And it was just funny because I'm driving out there with my assistant, and we see all these farms where they're selling, you know, hen eggs, you know, and we drove by a ton of them. And right when we got to Wilmer, right on the outskirts, we saw a sign for ostrich eggs. And you thought, I got to get one. (laughs) Why not get one? Um, And got one and decided at that point, what does it taste like? And so we didn't know what it would taste like. We knew, in case people don't know, one ostrich egg is about 24 regular hen eggs. Um, and so we wanted to figure out some kind of way of cooking it. And eventually I found that the owner of Key's Restaurant on Robert Street in downtown St. Paul, through a friend of a friend, said, sure, come on, bring it in, and we'll, we'll fry it up to a sunny-side egg with some toast and like that and see if we can do it. And so we did it, and, and your station covered it, if you want right. to tell that part of the story. Well, yeah, no, so, so, so you called me up and said, well, I've got this ostrich egg, and I'm going to cook it. Do you think the station wants to come out and cover it? And I'm like... First of all, as I said yesterday, I thought you were nuts. Yeah. I was like, okay, it was like, I said, okay, I'll pitch it, but I, I just really didn't think people would be that interested. Well, people went nuts over the pitch. They just thought it was the most, you know, the, the people in the meeting were like, so they sent one crew with Nina Moyni, a fabulous reporter at right. WCCO TV, and then the promotions folks also sent a separate camera. So it was like team coverage of your ostrich eggs at Keys. And I must admit, both Nina's story and the um, uh, video that uh, Erica posted on Facebook, on WCCO.com Facebook, they were really good. I mean, it was really, really fun stuff. And, and it looks like it was, I mean, you all were kind of sitting there watching her cook the ostrich egg, which was huge. It was huge. And so we had to have somebody bring in a special tool to cut the egg. I mean, it literally looks, some, you know, like I've seen pictures. If you ever seen it on television where they show scenes of somebody trying to, like, what, do brain surgery, they have to use a special tool to, like, to cut through, the, like, the skull or something. Um, it took 10 minutes with a power tool to cut through the egg um, to, get, to get it open at the top. And then we poured it into a bowl that was enormous. And we all there were like, oh, my God, because... I think the yolk was about 8 to 10 inches of the <laughs> diameter. It was just enormous. And so she threw it on the grill, and we put toast all around the perimeter of it, you know, kind of hold it in. And she did an amazing job. Her name was Carol, um, cook- cooking it. 
And eventually, we had about 10 or 11 of us there, um, including the reporters. You know, they, um, you know, Nina, um, the camera person. I'm forgetting who your social media coordinator is, what her name is. Erica. Erica, okay. Um, we all sat down, and we had a plate of, um, of ostrich egg and toast. And none of us were sure what it was going to taste like. We were all kind of like, hmm, is it going to be good or not good? It was actually really tasty. It was really good. I mean, does it taste like a fried egg? It tasted like a very rich um, fried egg. So the white was a little bit more rubbery than you would have it with, with a hen egg, but the but it was still good. The yolk was just first off the intensity of the color. It was it was closer to an orange as opposed to a yellow. You know, for a mm. yolk, um, but it was had a very strong, very intense taste, and it was good. Now for people who are you know, in greater Minnesota, I'll, I'll do a comparison, and I don't know how many will know this, is that, you know, when I was first going into this, I was concerned that it wouldn't taste like a hen egg. Maybe it would taste like a goose egg or a duck egg, and I've had those because I had grandparents who grew up on farms, uh, and, and goose eggs and duck eggs are bitter. They're really not a good, like, frying egg, at least in my opinion, and so I was wondering what it was going to be. This was very close to just a very rich, very tasty, you know, strong, tasty um, hen egg. Okay. All right. So anyway, I'm glad it ended up well. I, I don't know if um, uh, you're going to be going back and getting more ostrich eggs anytime soon because it was quite the endeavor, but at least now you know. Well, well I know, but I was going to say the funny part was when I was looking on Twitter, um, I think it was Nina um, you know, was, it was tweeting about it because it was her story, and I guess some people chimed in also talking about other places where you could actually buy or order ostrich eggs. And I think um, uh, Amelia and Frank, you know, when they did the story, that was, was that Tuesday night, I think it was Tuesday night, actually had mentioned that there are places where you can order ostrich eggs. And so I don't know whether the ostrich egg business um, is going to increase as a result of this. But, uh, but again, it was a story that, as I described it to you, has no redeeming political purpose. It was just, just a silly midsummer fun story. <laughs> and you know something? We need that. Yeah, we do. We, do. <laughs> we definitely need that because uh, certainly there, is, uh, there are all kinds of things um, going on in this world. I mean the latest obviously news coming out of Charlottesville, uh, a lot of attention focused on – uh, horrible situation there where, where right-wing groups were, were protesting. Uh, they were opposed to the removal of the statue there. The protests turned violent. At least one person has died. Um, other 19 others injured. There was a crash that we're not sure if it's related of a police helicopter nearby. Uh, it's just a, a mess. And some of these, you know, we had the incident last week where, where a mosque here was firebombed. It just seems like tensions are, are sort of boiling over in, in many places around the country. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what this reminds me of is sort of pre-passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act America, you know, where the tensions and the fight over civil rights, over speech, over, you know, you know Vietnam protests are starting to crank up, urban America protests are cranking up. It just has that feel to me right now. and It just seems like we're almost on the verge of being a tinderbox. I mean, we're clearly not at the point yet of where we're getting the, you know, the, the, the massive sort of urban riots that we had from the 1960s. But you're absolutely correct in the sense that there is this kind of this eerie sense of which everybody seems to be, um, I'm not sure what pins and needles, I'm not sure what the, what the right metaphor I want right. to use at this point. Absolutely. Well, it is, it is, and certainly um, another situation that people are extremely tense about is the situation in North Korea. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to Professor David Schultz about the situation involving North Korea. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO.
It's 818 in the Twin Cities. My guest, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, your blog, always great. The last blog you wrote uh, focused on the crisis with North Korea. What is your take on what is happening here? Well, a couple of, I'll even update it compared to yesterday. But what I talked about yesterday um, was in terms of the, the military options. And really what people are worried about is, you know, are we on the verge of going to war? Now, I'll mention the fact to say that when I was in grad school a zillion years ago, I actually took a class on nuclear weapons strategy. So, that, so this is a long, long time ago. But, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what was going on in North Korea. Because clearly, you know, people are still wondering, you know, are we going to go to war? What happens and so forth? And part of what I was trying to talk about yesterday um, was the sense in which, you know, one of the reasons why, and believe it or not, the Cold War was so stable on one level between the Soviet Union and the United States is, is that we both had enough weapons to blow each other up. Uh, it was called mutual um, assured destruction. That was a deterrent from, from, from going to war because, you know, if we fired against them, they're going to fire against us. Plus, we had good communications you know, with, with Russia, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we had some high degrees of certainty regarding what was going to go on in predictability. A lot of those conditions don't exist between North Korea and, and, and the United States. That, yes, we've got what some people are saying are two hotheads in terms of the head of the United States, head of North Korea, that, that certainly doesn't help, but... But we don't have the conditions that are in place that made for the stability, of, you know, again, during that what, 50 or 60 year, almost 70 year Cold War period. And that's partly what worries me here is that we also, that's part of it. The other part is the fact that, you know, Trump um, and Kim are doing their diplomacy in, in public language, you know, and, and not taking things privately, and that's just inflamed things. And right. so as of yesterday, you know, I was looking at it saying, we looked like we're starting to escalate out of control because things are unpredictable and we don't know where they're, where they're, where they're going. Um, I've made some slight changes if I were going to assess it today. And, and in terms of, of, I mean, I guess we've gotten through another day without any other sort of escalating rhetoric, it seems like, you know, the situation in Charlottesville has kind of deterred right. or, or taken the president's, you know, attention away. But I think what people are concerned about is that you've got two incredibly powerful men here mm-hmm. who appear to be kind of reacting from their gut. They are. They're and just, you know, without, you know, not only consulting their allies, but also consulting their own leaders. And exactly. And they're also not consulting their own military. I think one and partly what I find interesting right now is, if in fact, the United States is preparing for war. Um, there's absolutely no indications that, that President Trump is consulting with his military, despite what that phrase was today or yesterday, we're locked and loaded or something. Right. Um, there's, for example, we're not seeing any request to evacuate 200,000 U.S. nationals in South Korea. Um, we don't see any battleships moving from Japan or from, let's say, Diego Garcia, or from Guam. Um, we don't see any stocking up of, of aircraft around Guam. And so all the normal things that you might see or anticipate if we are actually um, preparing for war or preparing for a major defense um, posture just don't seem to be there. And there's nothing that I have heard. You know, again, obviously I don't have privileged any confidential information, but there's nothing I've heard or nothing I've seen that indicates 
that our military is going on higher alert or doing anything. So, so on all those scores, uh, if in fact Trump um, is, is preparing to say we're going to do something, uh, our military infrastructure hasn't been consulted and it's not prepared um, for a large-scale war. Now, whether it, we would hope that they're prepared for defensive measures to shoot down missiles and so forth. But still, there doesn't seem to be a lot of indication that the military seems to be preparing for any of this. Right. It also sounds like, you know, the president's advisors are sort of saying one thing and he's saying something else. I mean, Mm -hmm. how unusual is that? That's incredibly unusual here. Again, going back to, you know, I'd say the most classic case of a... um, of, of, of a public confrontation is the Cuban Missile Crisis. If we take us back to Kennedy and Khrushchev, was that 63? If that's if thing was 63, whatever, if I remember correctly. And the story's all about how Kennedy um, was involved, you know, postured. It was in significant consultation with, with an experienced cabinet of people um, who had long records of foreign service. He was talking to his military people. Um, there was a unified message coming through the United Nations with his, you know, U.N. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson. And so, it, it, so the statements that were being made public um, were, were well vetted you know, by, by um, the bureaucracy and by the, the military and State Department ambassadorial um, um, staff. And so you, so, you, so you had a unified voice there. Here we don't have it. And this has been sort of the classic problem that the Trump administration um, faced in its first, what, almost eight months in office, is Trump um, speaking in one direction and his staff um, either speaking in a different direction or or in multiple different voices, and especially when it comes to issues of foreign affairs, where you want the country to speak in one voice, and traditionally that's what happens, um, this creates more infu- uh, confusion, and that becomes part of the difficulty here, too, is that, is that the signals that may be being picked up by North Korea are very conflictual and very confused, and one doesn't know how they're going to react to those. And, and you know, you, you obviously, you, you travel extensively. You've just spent um, a couple of weeks in China. What's kind of the reaction? I know you know a lot of people internationally. What's sort of the reaction, you know, from, from people you know in the international community about sort of th- these, you know, different signals from different p- people in the administration that seem to conflict with what the president's saying I mean, were you getting questions about that? Because it's not like this is something new. This is actually cons- – the inconsistency has been consistent throughout his presidency. Exactly, yeah. And, and clearly, both in talking to some of the other professors as well as students, uh, I, I think they, they, they clearly a lot of the questions that were being directed to me was, was trying to discern some type of coherence in, in, in U.S. foreign policy and in U.S. policy towards – China and North Korea. And obviously, I was there before this recent flare-up, you know, in the last couple of weeks um, happened. I've been home now for about three weeks or so. But nonetheless, the, the, again, there was this confusion, questions regarding what is supposed to, you know, you know, you know what, what's supposed to occur. And I would say at least at that point, you know, up, to, up till three weeks ago, there was more consistency um, in the Trump's um, foreign policy compared to Obama's. Um, let me put it this way: there was a greater consistency from the Obama to the Trump pre- Trump presidency than most people had seen. You know, despite Trump's blustering about 
things such as China is a trade partner. Nothing had really changed. Yes, he canceled TPP, but pretty much everything had sort of been going along the exact, you know, the same way, which is generally true. Best predictor of a new president's foreign policy is look at the past president's foreign policy. But now, in the last few days, I've been sort of exchanging emails and actually WeChat, which um, WeChat uh, with some of the people over in China, and they are very perplexed regarding this, and they are also perplexed in the sense that Trump seems to think that China has more leverage over North Korea than they really do. Well, aren't, aren't they? They are their biggest trade partner. They're the though. biggest trade partner, but but China is also frustrated. That one, that's what I learned when I was actually back there you know, in July, is that China doesn't like the idea that North Korea is pursuing this, this missile program also for two reasons. One is China views What's their Asia, neighbor. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, China views um, Asia, their, their sphere of influence, and they don't want a rival. And two, with North Korea um, 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 developing this missile capacity, it changes the, the balance of power in that area in ways that are unpredictable. And then three, I'll now throw in here the fact, and I think this was an article in the Washington Post yesterday, where China essentially said to North Korea, you take a shot at the United States, you're on your own. You know, we're not going to be there for you. Um, I think China's biggest fear is if North Korea does do something and the regime collapses, the last thing China wants um, is a unified Korea or a or an American ally um, on on Chinese on the Chinese border along the Yalu River. So so China wants to try to do something. Um, since I was getting even back then, but they feel like they have limited control over Kim, and and, and they they feel that we're overstating the, the amount of influence. Correct that they have. Okay, interesting point there. Because Correct that that's something that um, uh, is been widely reported. Well, listen, um, we do have to take a quick break here for weather. When we come back, we'll have more with David Schultz. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 832 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, uh, talking politics here up until nine o'clock. Uh, do want to talk about some of the developments in Washington, and then perhaps later this half hour, uh, some d- interesting developments here locally with uh, somebody actually GOP tapping something to run against Amy Klobuchar and some of these congressional races shaping up. But want to ask you first about uh, what is going on between the president and Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader. This this I find to be one of the more well, in a week where there's a lot of bizarre stories, this is the one that I find almost at the top of my list of, of, of sort of, you know... Baffling. Baffling or bizarros. Okay, so, so you clearly need both Paul Ryan and you need Mitch McConnell to be able to help move your legislative agenda you know, through the House and the Senate. Yes, Mitch McConnell failed in terms of, of getting the you know, Affordable Care Act, repeal Obamacare. And, and there's lots of reasons why that happened. We don't need to sort of go through a whole litany of, of reasons why that happened. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not like Mitch McConnell um, didn't want to move that on his agenda. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it failed. Um, and Trump is now going after him um, for what, what appears to be inexplicable reasons, you know, blaming him for the failure. Yeah. Affordable Care Act, um, um, and basically wants him wants him out. Well, I'd say Mitch McConnell is actually um, a very very good in terms of moving legislation and a very smart tactician. 
And I think the bigger problem is not Mitch McConnell, but again, it's Donald Trump's inability to sort of work the legislature. But yeah, I find it a very very bizarre story. Right. And, and just you know, to, almost as if like he's sort of the scapegoat there. Yeah. I think that the larger issue is that the, the problem is that, that parts of the Affordable Care Act, while there's, there are things that need to be fixed, there's no question about it. Obviously, there are parts of it that people like, and mm-hmm. that's not sort of Mitch McConnell's fault. That's right. And, yeah. and it, you know, it does seem you wonder <laughs> in terms of future loyalties what um, – it, it almost seems as if the president picks somebody on his own side. You know, Jeff Sessions was sort of the, the punching bag right. a, a couple weeks of weeks ago, yeah. and now it's Mitch McConnell. But, you know, again, the, these are all players on his own team. Yeah. And, and you have to wonder what it's like to be in that environment. I mean, I, I know people who have worked in the White House, and it's an incredibly difficult. Whatever party you're in, it, it's, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of long hours. And it must be somewhat demoralizing to think that the president could turn on you. It is. Uh, and and it, it sort of reminds me of, again, watching The Apprentice, where where at almost any second um, you're fired, no matter how loyal or how hard those people worked on The Apprentice, it seemed that, that he was willing to sort of dump on them. And it's sort of the same thing here, is that his... You know, his lieutenants, in this case, we can call them that, you know, Mitch McConnell, you know, Paul Ryan, you know, have, have really done their best and have not always been successful. But as you pointed out here, something dramatically has changed in the politics in the last, um, let's say, since, since um, Trump became president. Is take us back to when Obama was president, a majority of the U.S. population did not support the Affordable Care Act, would like to have seen it repealed. Now what we're down to is a point where a majority of the Americans actually support the Affordable Care Act, would like to see it fixed, not repealed. Um, you've got a core group of, 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 of Trump supporters and, and of hardcore Dem- Republicans, I should say, not Democrats. I'm guessing that might be only about 30-35% of the population that still want it repealed, um, but it is an act now that is enjoying quite a bit of support, um, including in lots of Republican areas, and that's making it very difficult for the Republicans to to move to repeal it and and not recognizing that shift in the in the political environment in the United States. Um, I think is is one of the mistakes that that Trump is making, and I would argue that in part that was one of the mistakes I think that Mitch McConnell made um, is not realizing that shift in public opinion in the United States. Right, and and, and the question is, you know, again, total Republican control in Washington. There's a story also about. Uh, in the Washington Post right now, Republicans may not have the votes for more spending cuts. And the first line of the story is, after years of Republican demands that any increase in the federal government's borrowing limit be paired with corresponding spending cuts, leaders in Congress appear to lack the votes to pass those cuts, even with total GOP control in Washington. What, what, cause, because they have complete control, what are the consequences of, of not getting Things done. Well, this is well, there's sort of two different questions here. One is the consequences of not getting things done. When you have total control. With total control means in the Republican areas, a lot of those members of Congress will face perhaps being primaried from the right, where people will run against them and, um, and, and challenge them and say, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, and you didn't. And so that, that's one consequence. The second consequence is going on here is, again, think back to the House of Representatives, where 
you know, we've all lost track now. Was it 50 or 60 times they voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act? Uh, and they could do that when they knew it was either not going to be voted to repeal it in the Senate or knew that if it was that the president was going to, was going to veto it. And so it becomes a lot harder to govern, uh, to be uh, um, when you're governing, where you actually are responsible for for public policy and for the government. And I think that's partly what we're starting to see now with some of the Republicans, is that it was easy to say cut, 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 cut. But now when they can start to look at some of those cuts and how it might affect some of their constituents, that's an issue. And think about, I think, you know, an issue we're not talking about much today, but we should, is the is the is the opioid crisis in the United States, you know, is that I think, you know, as we all know, it's, it's, it's a severe, major, major problem in the United States. And had the changes in the Affordable Care Act gone through what Trump wanted to do, spending and cut, um, for that would have been cut. And there's actually a lot of Republicans now who are saying, we need to spend dramatically more money um, on addressing the opioid crisis. And so, so I think part of this, the other consequences, when you're in power, you're, you're accountable, which means you now have to face the people um, when you are making the cuts. And this is the problem, bring it close to home. Right. Um, the protests you know, um, by Jason Lewis's house, um, his office, and so forth like that. A lot of Republicans are having a hard time going home to their home districts during the August recess facing angry constituents. Right, and, and you know, the White House is actually calling on Congress to forgo a political fight and increase the debt limit mm-hmm. by the September 29th deadline uh, without attaching any kind of legislation to it. And obviously that's going to alienate conservatives, but clearly uh, – it's going to be so interesting to see what happens, you know, not that far from now in, in, in some of these congressional races. Uh, and, and I think that's something that, that, you know, we're already seeing as well. Now, you mentioned that the protests outside Jason Lewis's home, isn't this, isn't sort of the tactics of the Tea Party, uh, mm-hmm. which had those shouting, you mm-hmm. know, the, those shout, you know, town hall meetings where, uh, you know, Democrats were being shouted down or even, you know, some Republicans were being shouted down. Isn't that sort of, being flipped now? It is being flipped at this point, and the Republicans are now starting to face that in their own districts, and I don't think they like it, you know, because, again, they're the ones who are being held accountable. They're the ones who are being held for either saying they're going to repeal health care or they're not repealing health care or whatever they're doing. And, again, bring it back to the debt issue, because if they don't come to an agreement, you know, in a few weeks on raising the debt limit, the government shuts down, and this is solely on the Republicans' um, watch at this point. And we know in the two previous situations where um, the government shut down, it, it hurt Republicans both times because they were the ones who brought it about. So here, I think it's the same thing, is the Republicans have to, have to sort of say, gosh, we, you know, we, we want to do cuts, we want to do X, Y, and Z, but we still have to govern. We still, still have to be the adults you know, in terms of, of running the government. All right, chatting here with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, let's take a quick break here, and then let's shift gears and talk about, you know, some of the, the the races that are shaping up locally here, because we're starting to see, you know, a few people come forward, possibly running, um, oh, one against running against Amy Klobuchar. Some of the congressional races starting to take shape. Uh, so more with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Radio eight three zero WCCO. All right, Esme Murphy here, along with Professor David Schultz. It's eight forty five. 
All right, so uh, finally, Amy Klobuchar has an opponent yes. uh, running against her for the U.S. Senate seat in 2018. Uh, it sounds like that's a long way off, but actually, isn't it you know, a little late to have a major opponent come forward at this point? I actually think it is, because if we're thinking about several things down the line here, February will be the caucuses, you know, in Minnesota, February of 2018, which sounds like a long ways away. But if you're going to run for the U.S. Senate, if you're going to run for any kind of major position, you want to start building up your support and your fundraising early on. And the fact that somebody's now just starting to emerge, you know, in August, you know, you know, again, we're thinking 14 months, 15 months before the election. That sounds early, but no, given the fact that you're going to need to raise millions and millions of dollars to run for the Senate and against Amy Klobuchar even more, a very popular incumbent, uh, and, and given the fact that you want to be prepared going into the caucuses in February to have your supporters there, um, it's not too early. And in fact, as you said, I think it's it's actually getting late, the fact that somebody hasn't emerged um, to run against her. And it may simply be because she is so popular in this state, uh, perhaps you know, has the highest approval rating of any you know, statewide elected official in the state. And I think most candidates don't want to take a shot at her. Well, I think I think there is one person that has emerged, Representative Jim Newberger right. uh, from Becker. I was right. a Republican, but he's certainly um, not a household name. Certainly not a household name, which I think is indicative of just how popular she is. I right. mean, I, I think uh, you were mentioning, and I hadn't realized this until you mentioned it, that there are actually um, a lot more uh, in terms of the breakdown. How, how many senators are up? There are 34 senators going to be up for election in 2018. Of those 34, 24 of them are Republicans, 10 of them are Democrats. And the reason why I mention that is that, for lots of reasons, this is important, but if the Democrats want to take back the U.S. Senate in 2018, and many of them are hopeful they can do that, banking on the fact that Trump is so unpopular that Congress is imploding, the Democrats are going to have to hold all 10 of well, actually, they're going to have to hold all 24 of the seats that they are currently defending and then pick up three Republican seats of those 10. This is a very tall order. Right. And, and obviously, you, you don't foresee I – like, I don't foresee Republicans spending a whole heck of a lot on this race, the Klobuchar race in Minnesota. Correct, correct. But they also don't want to give her completely a free ride because if they don't put up at least some kind of token challenge – She's going to be able to take all of her money, all of her time, and campaign across the rest of the country and help other Democrats. So they want to lock her down a little bit. And, and my guess is, you know, in midterm elections, you know, where a lot of Democrats don't show up to vote, that my guess is, is that a Republican running, for, you know, against Amy Klobuchar will probably start with about 35 to 40 percent of the vote uh, in terms of being pretty much guaranteed to get that. And the question now becomes, does Klobuchar, you know, win as big as she won, you know, six years ago or will be more narrow? I wouldn't be surprised um, if, she, if, if when she wins, she doesn't have as great a blowout as she did last time. Right. And last time it was a blowout because she won all but two counties in, in, in the entire state. Right. Um, let's talk about some of the congressional races because it really looks like already – the the congressional races here, this one will once again be a hot spot in terms of really competitive congressional races. Uh, I've already seen ads targeting Jason Lewis. Mm-hmm. I've already heard ads supporting Eric Paulson. 
I, I think there's going to be a lot of money going into these congressional races. I think so, too. And it's unusual to see this early on um, major ads going after two incumbents. And so I think the Democrats are feeling like they have to, they have to take on these two people because, again, if they're going to narrow the gap, if not potentially retake the House, although I think it's a very, very tall order to do that, they're going to have to win seats like Paulson's and win seats like Lewis's um, in order to be able to do that. And the Lewis one becomes especially important because the the best time to knock off an incumbent is when they're running for election the first time. And if they can't knock off Jason Lewis this time, he might very well have that seat for several years because he builds up that power of incumbency, name recognition, and so forth. So I think the Democrats are going to are going to go for broke in that one. And the other and race, the same we, opponent as, as he had the last time, Angie Craig. You're right, correct, correct. And I think the other race I'm starting to hear some names being mentioned is also Tim Waltz, since Tim Waltz has announced that he's not running, at least for this point, he's saying he's not running for re-election, he's running for governor in Minnesota. That makes that an open seat, a seat that Democrats have held for however long Waltz has held it, um, and that's a seat that the Democrats want to hold, um, and Republicans obviously want to pick up. So I would, and so that'll be an open seat. So we've got three very competitive seats there, and I would have to say that even Rick Nolan's seat, you know, up up in the 8th District remains a competitive seat. Now, I've not heard um, if um, Stuart Mills is planning on running again for a third time, but I would say we probably have four very competitive seats um, in Minnesota, which is unusual given the fact that there's probably only about 25 or so really competitive congressional seats in the United States. And they will be competitive there. How about the 3rd Congressional District? Because... Once again, uh, a lot being said about Eric Paulson. I mean, it was very interesting. There was uh, the mosque that was firebombed last weekend in Bloomington is actually in his district. Mm -hmm. And there was actually – it was actually a very moving event. Uh, I think it was Wednesday night that um, the the mosque – or Tuesday night, the mosque organized an event. Uh, you know, basically sort of uh, an open house mm-hmm. and a, a show of solidarity. And the organizers, uh, uh, you know, told me that um, I was you know, at the mosque pretty much all day before this event. And they said, you know, we don't know if there's going to be 100 people here or, you know, 500, but we're, we're doing this and it doesn't matter. We're putting this on because we want – we're hoping people rally around us. Well, it was about 1,000 people that came out mm-hmm. and it was a, a very impressive turnout and it was very moving because it was so diverse. I mean, there were young people, there were old people, there were white people, there were black people, there were brown people. I mean, it was, it, it was really um, moving to see all those people come together. Um, uh, Senator Franken was there. Members of the Bloomington City Council were there. Uh, Dean Phillips, who is a philanthropist, who is one of the Democrats running uh, for the third district seat to try and unseat uh, Congressman Paulson, was there. Congressman Paulson was not there, mm-hmm. and um, you know he had an aide there who was tweeting pictures. But I thought, gosh, you know this is this is a pretty this is national news here. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal, uh, and you know I, he was away on a family vacation, and I just I thought, you know, this is you kind of need to be here at some of these mm-hmm. events, especially when it's that big a deal. No, I I agree, and there's been a couple of occasions where I think. Paulson has had kind of a tin ear when it comes to his constituents. 
um, and some other issues and some events that are going on there in his district. And I think that's partly what makes some people think that he might be vulnerable, on top of the fact that a lot of the um, legislative races out there um, are ones that Democrats pick up. I think his congressional district also went for Hillary Clinton um, last time, if I remember correctly. And so there, are, so there are lots of indications that it's a district that if the Democrats can find the right candidate and the right messaging, one that's potentially they can pick up. Um, but they so far have been unsuccessful in figuring out the way of putting both the message and the candidate together, uh, as well as the strategy to do that. Right. And, and you would have thought that Terry Bonoff, who ran and lost pretty badly to Eric Paulson, she lost by more than 10 points in, in a district that Hillary Clinton actually carried by almost 10 points. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was certainly high, a highly regarded state senator, very popular, very charming woman, very personable. Um, you'd thought she would have been almost the ideal candidate. To, to, but if somebody was going to be able to take him down, Terry Bonoff would be it, and she didn't get close to him. Yeah, and it's interesting because when when that seat first opened up many years ago, um, would it be What's his name? Step down, forgetting his name. Uh, Jim Ramstead. Jim Ramstead. Um, I was talking to somebody. I might even said on the air to you, I said the ideal candidate in that district would be sort of a moderate pro-choice female um, legislator. And, and Terry Bonoff was on the top of my list, you know, in terms of people who I thought would have been, been really very good. But partly what struck me when she ran last year is really how bad of a campaign she ran, you know, and you probably covered it too, but she didn't really um, do a good job in terms of of strategy, campaigning. Now, I've heard lots of reasons for why, perhaps, some people said she listened too much to the DCCC, Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, whatever, but she really, in the end of the day, didn't run a strong campaign, um, and I would say Eric Paulson had the resources and money to be able to run a very, very effective campaign against her. Right, and and he has been... Very popular. I mean, I think yes. he's delivered on, uh, you know, student or on, on, you know, constituent services. Uh, I think, you know, but it's just you feel like he's getting the, this. He's being advised not to, to go out, not to create these images of, of conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that is um, perhaps the wrong message. And then you, you look at someone like Tom Emmer, who, who held the town hall, got it out of the way. Or a thousand people there, and he sort of dealt with it. And now, but but the, the longer you don't do it, it it, it lingers. You right. know? It sort of builds up and becomes sort of a story a story in of itself. But I think I think Paulson has sort of been taking the approach of of sort of you know of of, of avoiding conflict, of avoiding those, those kind of battles, and trying to sort of stand above all of it. All right. Yeah, I I, I agree with you, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, and it's. Uh, it was, you know, two events, the 4th of July parade that, you know, he had been registered to, you know, anyway, I covered that and I covered this one, but I was just very surprised to see, um, to not see him there in, in, yeah. in, a, in a, a very, very, very well attended um, and very um, significant event mm-hmm. uh, in his district. Yeah. Another thing, another battle that's shaping up here just with a couple minutes is the governor's race, too. Yeah. Um a lot of people uh, jumping into this race. <laughs> I can't even keep track. I was going to say, you and I may be the two people who are not running right. for governor or something <laughs> like that. Um, but what's the list up now? It's about 10 or 11 people or something like it's, that? At it's, least? it's more, I think, when you go through the whole list. But, yeah. um, you know, I think a lot of people think that one of the front runners, Tim Walls. Right. Tim Walls on the, on the 
on the Democratic side, of which is a very rich field there, um, I'm not sure if there's a a front runner for the Republicans yet. You've got um, the former Republican chair and legislator um, Downey, um, who has declared he's going to run uh, officially. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Well, I think a lot of people are also waiting for, uh, and I don't think there's any doubt that he is going to run. Uh, right, Speaker Kurt Dowd, Kurt Dowd who's, yeah. who's a yeah, right. An impressive politician in his own right, to say right. the least. And, and that's something he needs to, he should probably declare pretty soon, because again, for the same reasons we talked about, you know, we're talking about Amy Klobuchar and that, is that you want to start building up the support, you want to start doing the fundraising, you want to have the infrastructure in place for the caucuses come February. Um, I've also heard, now is it, is it, um, um, Johnson is thinking of running again also? Yes, remember. Jeff Johnson is running. Yeah, Jeff Johnson is running. So, but, but at this point, you know, I think you have about three or four Republicans have declared. I, I think it's, it's got to be 10 or 11 Democrats. It's a lot. <laughs> a lot. I was going to say, I'm losing track of who all it is at this point. But yes, by, and there's still rumored to be a few more out there who are thinking about running at this point. But yes, I would say Congressman Waltz is probably the favorite at this point. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very for much coming for coming on. Absolutely. All right. And so glad you got that ostrich egg cooked. Yep. It was tasty. All right. I want to know only Professor David Schultz. If you want to read his blog, it's really good. Schultz's take. Uh, always great insight, uh, as it is always great insight talking to him. All right, folks, keep it here. News Radio 830 WCCO. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 